Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Alexandra Carpino for a conversation about the ancient Etruscans. Dr. Carpino is professor in the Department of Comparative Cultural Studies at Northern Arizona University based in the U.S. She has written many publications over her career, including co-editing the book A Companion to the Etruscans, which she also contributed a chapter to. And that book is published by Wiley. Welcome to the show, Alexandra. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right, so to start with a contextual type question to create sufficient uh, background for the conversation, then we can work our way into the details. Who were the Etruscans? So the Etruscans are one of the major uh, civilizations of uh, ancient Italy. They um, lived primarily, if you've ever been uh, to Italy and to Tuscany, they live primarily in that region that we uh, today call Tuscany. Um, but their area expanded far north, um, as far north as the Po River Valley, and then down south as well to uh, Campania. Uh, we have sort of our earliest uh, evidence and information about the Etruscans going back to the Iron Age. And they really flourished until the first century uh, BCE when they're absorbed into uh, the Roman Empire. Okay. Is there any... Um... Is there any evidence as to where they may have come from as as people prior to settling in the Italian peninsula? So this is a really thorny question, um, the question of the origins of the Etruscans. And this was even something that the ancient authors uh, discussed. And so we have, for example, um, Herodotus, who's writing in the fifth century, who gives us this origin story of the Etruscans actually being migrants from uh, Turkey, from what is Asia Minor at that time. He tells this story of a, of a famine and lots being cast and the son Tyrenius of the, the Lydian king who brings the people who lost uh, the draw to um, Italy in search of new land. Um, and this is supposed to have happened, you know, sort of shortly after the Trojan War. Um, so kind of you have Aeneas settling, you have all these different stories, and then you have this other story of the Eastern origins of the Etruscans. Um, another author, another Roman author, Greek author actually living in Roman times, Dionysus of Halicarnassus, however, says, no, the Etruscans have always been in Italy. Um, and so we have these, and he refutes Herodotus, and he says he's the one who actually gives us their name, what we think was the name of the Etruscans. We call them today by their Latin name from Tusci, but the Etruscans in English. Uh, he gives us the name Racena, which we think means the people. Um, and he even says that he knew Etruscans in that day, who basically says that the Etruscans have always been in Italy. And what archaeology tends to show us is, in fact, that theory that the Etruscans have always been there and over a long period of development that probably goes back to the Neolithic period when you have lots of movements of people into Italy. Uh, the Etruscan culture slowly develops um, over time and then really becomes distinctive in the 7th century. 
And so that's kind of where we are with, with the different origin theories. Other Roman authors like uh, Livy thought they came from the north. Um, and so we have all of these different theories, but archeology span tends to support the notion that the Etruscans are native Italians, Italic peoples. Okay. What's known about the language or languages that they would have spoken in, the, in, in their, in their uh, writing system, if there was a writing system? Yeah, they have a writing system. Um, this is the other thing that, you know, when, when people often think about the Etruscans and talk about the Etruscans, when they think about the ancient Mediterranean, you know, we have Greece and we have Rome, and then we have these Etruscans. And part of the reason why the Etruscans are a little bit special is because they spoke a non-Indo-European language. And so it's unique and it's, it's sort of similar to, to, to maybe two other languages that, that are found, but really there's nothing else comparable um, to it. They did adopt the alphabet, just like the Greeks adopted the alphabet from Phoenicians uh, so too did the Etruscans. And so we can read Etruscan, but we don't always understand Etruscan um, because there's really nothing, you know, it's, it's difficult to compare Etruscan to, um, you know, the words are just so different uh, from other Indo-European languages since it wasn't um, one. And then the other challenge we have is the fact that so little of their actual writing survives. So we have a lot, like we have their alphabet. The alphabet is actually uh, preserved on a number of artifacts. We have ivory tablets, for example, that you can see were used by scribe people to learn the alphabet. We have inkwells that also have the alphabet on them. But in terms of their books, we know from our sources that the Etruscans produced and, and wrote books but they just don't survive because they were on either papyrus or linen, you know, and these are highly perishable um, materials. And so, you know, one of the, the main books that we do have, our text that we have is called the um, Zagreb mummy text. It was actually a text um, on linen that was later, um, used cut into strips and then used to wrap a mummy in Egypt. And then it was, um, you know, eventually deciphered and discovered that this was actually an Etruscan text, but it only contains about 1300 words and it's very fragmentary, you know, so it can be difficult to understand everything, but it's a religious text. It's like a religious calendar. And so we have names, we have um, inscriptions that are what we call speaking inscriptions. They tell us about the ownership of objects. Um, we have no histories, we have no literature that survived. Although from our um, other sources, Greek and Roman sources, we know the Etruscans uh, produced that. So they were a literate culture. And what's interesting about literacy in Etruria is that it's pretty widespread. There's a lot of inscriptions on artifacts, including artifacts connected to women like mirrors, which suggests that, you know, elite women could read. And a lot of scholars have proposed, you know, quite a high level of literacy um, among the well-educated. So you mentioned some, some, some things about um, the, the writings. Um, 
How would you so so how would you summarize in the records the the types of things that they were writing about? Like were they were they writing about uh, like like uh, re- records on transactions, for instance? Um, I think you mentioned there was no historical writing. Can you speak more about um, what's no, if you were to categorize the type of things that's in the corpus that that survives? Yeah, so mainly what survives are um, inscriptions, funerary inscriptions, or um, religious or inscriptions that relate to um, religious uh, donations, sort of votive offerings. And so they might name a deity, they might name the deceased, they often tell of relationships. Um, so we have a lot of automastic inscriptions that talk about actual Etruscans people and different relationships between those people. Um, we, in terms of the religious inscriptions, we do know that they would have had, um, you know, sort of proclamations and civic inscriptions, but very few survive. One of the few that does is the very famous um, plaques um, gold from an international sanctuary along the coast called Pyrgi. And there we have, and we're able to understand it because it's bilingual. And you have text uh, in Etruscan and text in Phoenician. And so that's how it was able to be translated. And it's a text that basically um, broadcasts the donation of a ruler, the ruler of the city of Kare, um, and dedicating this temple to a goddess, the goddess Uni or Astarte. So we we know that there were probably more things like that, um, but they just haven't uh, survived. So what we mainly have are religious and funerary texts and inscriptions. And then the other thing we know they wrote in terms of books is a whole series, because our Roman authors, sources tell us, is a whole series of books about um, religion, the Etrusca disciplina, the, the, the way that one communicates with deities and foretells the future. The Etruscans were very much interested in that. And so they had a whole series of religious books that laid out these kind of rites and rituals for communicating with the gods. Okay. And I'm going to have some follow-up questions regarding their religious or orientation. Okay. Um, but before we get there, I have one last question about language. Uh, I think it's the last question about language. And, <laughs> and, and I want to cover, I want to cover uh, governance, what's known about governance as, as well, before we, we go back to uh, their, their religious orientation. So um, if it wasn't, if scholars believe it's not an Indo-European language, um, do, do scholars uh, do scholars put the language under any language family? Not, I mean, that's this is not my area of expertise, but as far as I know, no. I mean, there are um, some languages that it seems to be similar to, like one of them is Lemian from the island of Lemnos in the Aegean. But we don't know, you know, if that particular language was the result or influenced by Etruscan traders who live there or not. You know, there's just a lot of questions um, that remain about this particular language. But with the comparative method and, and having especially bilingual inscriptions that survive, and I should mention that as we get later in um, 
the Etruscan chronology, especially in the period when Rome becomes much more important and is, is um, you know, on its move into Etruria, some of the bilingual inscriptions are also uh, include Latin, Latin and Etruscan. Um, and so that helps as well. But in terms of governance, one of the, you know, so we get this word Racena, you know, that, that seems to be the Etruscan name for themselves, like they had an identity. And in this period of Dionysus of Halicarnassus, he, he was still aware of that particular word and that particular identity. And we also have another word that describes um, the word we think is magistrate, and this is zilaf. And so a lot of uh, these funerary inscriptions will identify the public offices held by an individual. So the Etruscans were very much interested in their ancestors, in their genealogy, and also in promoting uh, their the offices that they served. And so this word zilleth is uh, the word for magistrate. And it's clear that there's always kind of an adjective that goes with it. And there were many different types of zilleths. Um, and so one we think, you know, might have been in charge of the military, there was one who might have been in charge of public works, um, and so many different um, elements there. And we also have in art, uh, different types of trappings that go with a magistry, sort of like a, you know, a, a folding stool, or a particular type of curved staff that we call the lituus from the Roman or the Latin, or um, you know, sometimes we see other types of trappings that seem to be related to um, magistrates, the double axe, for example. Um, and so what we don't know, of course, is you know, how someone became a magistrate. Was this by by birth? Was this elected? Were these annual positions? You know, there's just a lot of that that we that we don't know but we do have this word zilleth um that appears in many inscriptions you know going back quite quite early uh in time the majority come from the fourth century but we do have some earlier manifestations of that concept and beyond that and you mentioned um it sounds like it, it there's it's a bit scant so the evidence on on the topic of governance is is it known um be, beyond the the magistrate um uh, the type of authority a magistrate would have had, like the level of authority, is it known if there was? And I'm probably using, you know, I'm, I'm approaching anachronistic type terms, right? But when you, you know, short, shortly after you're in Rome, um, it depends when. But but in Rome, there's a Senate, for instance, right? So there's like an advisory type type body. Is there any any evidence about anything like that in uh, in this in this uh, uh, state? No, unfortunately not. So we think that, you know, power was definitely controlled by elite families. And, you know, going back, um, you know, to the Iron Age, you see elements uh, connected to, you know, the person of the warrior, so successful warriors, people who owned land. Um, there was a lot of intermarriage between these sort of select elite families in urban centers. Um, but that's, we just don't know enough. We don't have enough evidence to really be able to um, characterize it, you know, the way we can characterize either ancient Rome or ancient Greece. What's the extent 
in in the um, in the in the archives about their the the size of the pantheon when it comes to their religious orientation. Was it? Um, I'll ask a, a basic question: um, Is it believed that they 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 practiced a um, a, a polytheistic type religious system and uh, and any any sense of the size of the pantheon if there's deities um, and is there any is there any um, evidence about uh, if if what they the the where where the deities their their knowledge of the deities is there any evidence that they came from anywhere else these this this type of belief system like like a different part of uh, the world. So yeah, the uh, Etruscans were polytheistic. Um, their pantheon, in terms of names that have actually come down to us, we, we have uh, slightly over 60 names of different um, deities. Uh, we have the name of who we think is their supreme god, Tin or Tinia. Um, and he's kind of like a, a Zeus or Jupiter type uh, figure thunder god he could throw um you know lightning and things of that sort um the names vary we have names that that sort of come from italic traditions we have names borrowed from uh, the greek and so we also see a god like uh, whose name was aplu who's very similar to apollo um we have menvra who is similar to athena or minerva but these deities aren't the same. So the Etruscans might have been influenced um, by a variety of different uh, traditions. Uh, early religion is often centered in a natural place, a spring, a cavity, um, in the rocks, a cave, a natural feature. And it's really only um, as uh, as they sort of open up to the wider world, starting in the seventh and sixth centuries, that they do begin to build um, sort of monumental sanctuaries with temples. But in terms of their practice, they, they didn't need that before. All they really needed was an altar to be able to communicate uh, with a deity. And so let's say there's, you know, lightning strikes at a particular natural element. Um, and then a shrine might build up from that from that place. And you see that also sacred springs. Um, so we have a lot of different deities and, and they're just, they're never the same. For example, Menvra, you know, if you think of her as an Athena, that would be mistaken because she's not really connected with the crafts in Etruria. She's connected with healing. She's connected with child rearing. And she actually had the power to throw lightning bolts, which is not something that, you know, she did uh, in ancient Greece. And so the Etruscans um, adapt and modify and sort of, you know, uh, conceptualize these deities to suit their own particular uh, needs and interests. And for them, these gods were all powerful, supreme, the ultimate authority who regulated everything in their lives. And so a lot of the religious texts, like this Zagreb mummy text that I mentioned, are about, it's like a calendar of what you have to do every day to whom you must offer something, um, you know, the nature of the offering, you must offer wine on this day to this God in order to have a good life, in order for life to be good. 
Um, and this sort of ties into another really important aspect of Etruscan religion, which is quite different from ancient Greece and Rome. And that is, is that um, many of the practices and many of the, the ways the Etruscans kind of organize their lives related to religion have to do with the fact that they were given, you know, you know how to study and communicate the gods from prophets, from various prophets, both male and female. So prophecy um, and divination and priests who had those special knowledges and skills are a very important aspect of the Etruscan, something they actually pass on to the Romans. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that if you're, if you're interested. Is it believed that, because um, you, mentioned, you mentioned that um, they're not I- identical in a lot of cases when you compare them to Greek deities, but you also mentioned their similarities. Um, there's some similarities there. Do scholars believe then that um, Greek people influenced Etruscans' um, belief belief systems, or is it looked at instead that uh, their belief systems were formed in, independent? I think it's more independent, but with influences. And so, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that you know this is a pan Mediterranean um, culture with lots of give and take, back and forth, because these people were all in contact with each other. And trade is a big part, and trade goes, you know, both ways. Um, and so, in many Etruscan sanctuaries, you have um, multiple divinities, especially along the coast. For example, this place Pyrgi that I mentioned is an international uh, sanctuary where you have people from all over the world, including, you know, other people other than the Greeks, like the Phoenicians and Near Easterns. There's a lot of Near Eastern influence as well, not just Greece. Uh, Greek influence, um, you know, that come together and eventually, um, you know, give rise and shape to, you know, how these deities were. And they don't remain static. They they change over time um, as well. Um, and so I don't think it's, it's not really uh, useful to think of, you know, Greek influence, but, you know, sort of common ideas about uh, different types of nature gods um the etruscans are then gonna sometimes you know manifest with particular names and particular skills and particular um forms as time goes on okay so maybe they they influenced uh greek tradition tradition in some way as well is that what you're getting at well no it's hard to say i mean it's really hard to say i I doubt i don't think so but you know we always sort of start with this notion of the Greek pantheon, the Roman pantheon, the Etruscans in the middle. But I think the bottom line is that that we don't really know. These are, you know, the, these are all, um, you know, very similar types of concepts related to deities connected to natural phenomena. Um, and there's a long tradition of, because we don't know a lot about them, you know, of, of just, you know, native Italic deities as well that then, you know, the Etruscans also um, pick up and absorb. So some of them, you know, have, have, you know, names that are much more, or characteristics that are probably much more similar to um, Near Eastern, like the, the consort of Tinia is Uni, and she's mentioned in the Pyrgi plaques, for example, as akin to Astarte, the Phoenician goddess. Um, 
and so it's it's a lot more complicated i think than than just you know uh one you know a culture kind of absorbing a different culture's pantheon that's not how it was at all yeah you got the point across especially uh you know the the point about the traveling back and forth right with these different cultures and the the pan um in terms of the area um so were these urbanized people were was it pastoral pastoral can you speak more about about that yeah yeah so the etruscans the other thing that uh really distinguishes them from um other italic peoples is that they were city dwellers they um you know our early evidence uh for them are in small scale uh, communities that develop in the iron age and then as time goes on, um, many of those same settlements expand and become major urban centers. And the Etruscans place these urban centers like going way back in highly fortified, defensible plateaus up above these, you know, if you've been to Tuscany, you know, the, the big tufa outcroppings and on top they would have their cities. And then down below they would have their fields and the cemeteries um and so they were very much uh in urban culture but in urban culture heavily dependent on natural resources agriculture uh, mining in fact one of the reasons they were so wealthy or you know a few of them um were quite wealthy was because of the fertility of that area the natural fertility there would have been a lot more forests in ancient times. So for timber, uh, the Etruscans are known for their metallurgy. They exported uh, minerals that, you know, for example, the Greeks didn't have like uh, tin. Um, and so that was one of the main bases uh, for their trade. We know, for example, that they produced, um, you know, just like today, wine and olive oil. And, you know, there's a shipwreck off the coast of France that that has amphorae that contained Etruscan wine. So we know they were exporting, you know, these products um, all over the Mediterranean. But they were definitely an urban an urban civilization. They created roads, they created bridges, they had communication links, um, their ships, um, you know, trade along the rivers. Um, those are some things that really uh, set them apart from some of the other uh, communities um, in Italy at the time. Some of these major cities in Italy today, like Genoa and Florence, um, somewhat in this area, is there any evidence in, in any of these major cities um, that uh, the Etruscans had, had settled there previous, almost like a predecessor to the, to the city as, as we would know it today? Absolutely. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that we don't have, you know, tons of information about um, their urban centers is because some of the major cities are still occupied, you know, so like Orvieto or, um, uh, or others and, and Florence too. Um, Fiesole, which is just uh, the, the city up above is was the Etruscan uh, section. And so where we get, and there's more and more our, um, archaeology revealing information about settlements, and they tend to be in more rural areas, far from these major um, Etruscan cities. So a place far north like Genoa, no, but in, the, in that particular area of, um, of Italy, we still have Cortona, like all of these places 
you know, lots and lots of Etruscan remains that are going to be underneath the medieval, the Renaissance, and everything else that, that came after. Where we find really good evidence of Etruscan um, um, urban life is in some of the new the excavations that have been taking place in place, you know, smaller uh, communities like Aqua Rosa or a place discovered in um, the 1960s, uh, not too far from Siena. Siena is another city that is Etruscan. Um, and of course, it's known today for its medieval um, um, uh, time period, but it was an Etruscan city as well. And just outside Siena to the south is a place called um, Murlo. And near Murlo in the 60s was discovered this amazing palatial complex with many different phases going back to uh, the seventh century. And it really gives us a glimpse of how these local elites lived at this time and the kind of communication networks uh, that they had. Another, uh, just to go back to that question about the writing, another element of writing that I didn't mention that survives are um, inscriptions that emphasize gift exchange, you know, exchanges between aristocrats in different parts, not only of Italy, but also the world. Um, and so that's also uh, very interesting. Um, hospitality tokens, so to speak, um, that show relationships, far-flung relationships between Etruscans and others can, all over the Mediterranean. Can you share an example of a, of a, of a token, if you're to describe it? Well, they just, uh, they usually, um, I'm trying to think. Or a gift, um, or a gift as an example, just a, so people can well, visualize. Well, a gift would be like, these would be, um, um, sometimes they're little ivory plaques, or sometimes they're a vessel, um, often made out of um, a particular type of Etruscan fabric known as bucuro. And these would be offered, you know, to someone and they would have this little inscription um, on them that 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 designates them as a gift okay um, so you know the etruscans also are known for their their banqueting their you know just like in italy today you know food and wine was a major part of life and it was definitely a major part and we know that there were you know elaborate gatherings this place i mentioned poggio civitate near murlo you know could accommodate banquets of 200 people um and so huge parties you know, out at these at these locations. And these would have been not just, you know, social occasions probably, but also political, we think, as well. The, uh, I, and I, I might have the pronunciation slightly off, but the bo uh, the Bucaro that you, you had mentioned, um, yes. and pl you please mention the, the correct pronunciation if I'm saying that in incorrectly. Uh, was that a textile or something else? No, Bucuro is a, it's a fabric, it's a terracotta, it's a type of clay process that uh, was a very refined, they, they have the, the, the natural clay there is very, can be unpurified, it's called impasto. And through this special process of uh, purifying it and cleaning it up and then firing it, the Etruscans created this very distinctive wear that um, after being fired, came out black and very glossy and shiny. And it, we think they did it to imitate metal vases, but it's a signature type of pottery uh, for them invented in the seventh century. And we actually find it exported. It was one of their main exports. Like the Greeks actually liked it. It was one of the few things the Greeks um, mm -hmm. actually bought 
you know, from the Etruscans aside from natural uh, resources. And so we find this pottery all over uh, the Mediterranean. Um, it was probably invented in the south in the city of Civetidi in the seventh century. Um, and then it, they sort of stopped producing it by the fifth, um, early fifth century. Um, but it, it's, it's a very characteristic Etruscan um, type of pottery that you don't find anywhere else. Yeah, it sounds beautiful and precious. Um, and I don't want to get too far outside a history context, but, but do you know if people try to emulate that today at all, that process and, and create that in contemporary times? People do, people do. Um, you know, you do see imitations um, of Bukuro uh, being made, um, but, uh, you know, nothing on the scale that, that the Etruscans uh, did. What, so. what was their uh, competency uh, as, as seafaring people? Absolutely excellent. And we know this too, because, um, you know, the Greeks characterized them often as pirates pirates on the sea, you know, who were, um, you know, raiders and, you know, basically, you know, you, you look at these sources and you have to say, okay, what you see from the Greek perspective is competitors, people who were highly skilled. Um, and we have, uh, you know, we don't have actual ships that have survived, but we have representations of ships in tomb paintings. Um, you know, we have shipwrecks. Um, that also show highly sophisticated um, abilities to dominate the sea. Absolutely. And that's really, you know, one way that they, they, they got so much of their wealth as merchants, you know, bringing highly successful um, trading products all over the Mediterranean. Um, so let's go to then uh, what's known about some of their uh, interactions with other societies. Um, can you speak about, uh, and it probably, probably does, does ch change. So maybe if we, um, probably for the best case for, for time is maybe highlight more the gen general stuff. Um, but what's known about, um, be their interactions more in the earlier period. So let's say more mid first millennium with, with Rome, maybe if we kind of started there and maybe did they, is there any evidence of them having interactions with like, let's say the, the, uh, the Samnites the, with, with, uh, people from Samnium. The latter part, I'm not, I don't think so. I mean, although, I mean, the Etruscans at their height, um, you know, sort of were present, you know, as I mentioned, you know, North to the Po river Valley, all the way uh, to the Adriatic, there are trading communities that were developed there in places called Spina and Adria. Um, and, you know, all the places uh, in between connected through these uh, roads and other types of communication networks. The Etruscans, there's also, you know, this whole history of the Etruscans in Rome with Etruscan kings um, basically living in and ruling Rome in the sixth century. Uh, so Etruscans and Romans very much connected. Um, we have evidence in Latium, the area you know where, that Rome is surrounded by, uh, the city of Prydneste, um, 
has a lot of contacts uh, with Etruria. We can see that in many of the tombs that survive and the, um, for example, mirrors that survive in these tombs and the artifacts that show close connections uh, between the two. Um, and then at their height, the Etruscans were also, you know, well into Campania, the area around the Bay of Naples. Um, and so they had, just in Italy alone, they were major players as um, merchants and traders with all of these other um, Italic peoples. And then abroad, you can, you know, think about pretty much anyone else in the Mediterranean they had connections uh, with. In this uh topics top of mind for me because I just um, completed a recording session with Dr. Catherine Lomas um, from Durham University this morning on Rome after the first Pu uh, Punic War. So from you know what was occurring in Rome after after the first Punic War. Um, do you know if is there any evidence um, if the Etruscans participated in any of the Punic Wars? So they, you know, so um, the Romans start their inroads into Etruria um, in the early fourth century. So the city closest to um, um, Rome, which is Veii, falls in 396. And then throughout the fourth century, there's periods of peace and war. The Etruscans were never, you know, unified enough to really mount, uh, you know, a decent defense against. And so the Romans, you know, basically made inroads. And then, um, you know, these Etruscan communities had to kind of decide how to respond. Um, and in some cases, they aided the Romans, and in other cases, they, you know, they went against them. Um, I'm not as familiar with, with that particular period to be able to give you a definitive um, answer, but I know that at different points in time, you know, the Etruscans were asked to provide grain or natural materials to help, uh, you know, either the Romans or another um, individual, another group. And, you know, they, they did so. And I'm just not remembering, you know, enough about my, my history of that particular period. Okay. Um, I could, I could double check and let you know, I could just email you um, a little bit information, but off the top of my head, I just can't. I just can't remember. It's okay. So so let's go to then um, the later period of their civilization. So what's what's known about what happened uh, with their civilization? So essentially what happens is, um, you know, starting in the fourth century, we have, you know, the Roman Republic slowly encroaching and conquering cities, establishing colonies, um, you know, the Etruscan communities, as I mentioned, kind of having to kind of figure out, uh, you know, what to do. There are periods, you know, just to kind of think about, you know, there were sometimes slave rebellions in certain Etruscan towns, and sometimes the Romans would help, you know, they would appeal to Rome to help, and the Romans would help. And this happened, for example, in um, what is today Orvieto, Volsinii, and, you know, they probably thought they had a really good relationship with the Romans. The Romans helped the community against these rebellions. But then in, um, you know, in the third century, the Romans sacked the city anyways. And we have stories, for example, in Pliny that tell us about, you know, the sheer number of booty that the, that the Romans, you know, took out of this city, you know, after, after um, sacking it. Uh, so eventually what happens, you know, especially the cities in the inland and in the north, 
the coastal cities kind of fell first, colonies are established. Um, but it wasn't just it wasn't just a question of you know the Romans imposing a way of life. There was some give and take uh, in this particular period. But by, by the time of Augustus, Etruria essentially is just another province of Rome. Um, so it's a long period. You know, it's hard to encapsulate. You know, three centuries or so. Um, you know, into just a, a couple of sentences, but. By that time, this is the period as we move later into the second and first century where we clearly see Etruscans learning Latin, we see the bilingual inscriptions, um, we see the preservation of some Etruscan traditions, especially related to uh, religion. But by the first century, that mid first century, Etruria is essentially um, you know, part of the empire. Okay. And their language, of course, isn't preserved. But one of the interesting things is, you know, some some people still identify as Etruscan. Um, the Roman Emperor Claudius, for example, married into an Etruscan family. He was very much interested in the Etruscans. He wrote 20 books about the Etruscans. Sadly, they, they, you know, they don't survive. So there was always still this interest, you know, especially in that early part of the empire um, in the Etruscans and people still identified in that particular way. But the Etruscan language um, and any kind of political autonomy that they had, like all of that disappears. It sounds like um, in a lot of what you're saying, though, they they're taught their civilization is part of the fabric of what Italy is today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, even the Romans uh, recognize that. I mean, they adopt many, many different traditions. We often think of Roman numerals. They actually, you know, learn those from the Etruscans, a lot of um, Roman um, letters as well. I mean, many, many different things. Uh, there's the, what we, what's called the, the toga picta, which is what was worn by, um, you know, victorious generals that originates in Etruria. There's a lot of you know, the arch, we think of Romans and the arch. Well, guess who did it first? You know, mm -hmm. the Etruscans, the cities, you know, all of that. Um, so much legacy um, uh, that we have that, that the Romans pick up on. And the challenge is that, you know, it was really in the Middle Ages that that there was that that, you know, the writings of the Greeks and the Romans were preserved, but but not so much the Etruscans. And so um, and then it wasn't really until the Renaissance, you know, as they're as they're discovering Etruscan artifacts that that, you know, people like Cosimo the first, you know, the famous um, chimera from Arezzo. These are these are discoveries that are happening, you know, in the Renaissance. And and there's a kind of rebirth and kind of connection to these old people, you know, that uh, that uh, they now want to kind of um, claim an ancestry uh, with. And then there's the various journeys that that basically take us up uh, to today, which is a, a whole nother topic. Um, but absolutely, like you can't. And I think this is the other thing for for um, for people studying and interested in ancient history. You know, so much is focused on Greece and Rome, but you really need to also know about the Etruscans in order to have a complete picture. And that's something that that today is 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 a lot more understood than it was even 10, 15 years ago. You know, the Etruscans are an integral part of the story of this of this uh, 
Mediterranean world. Yeah, and one of the things I enjoy about uh, hosting this podcast is I, I, I have that happen a lot to me when I'm in conversations and you start to hear the interconnections almost from different episodes, right? Because every day a new episode goes up and it's a different part of history in the Mediterranean and you realize really fast as you get into this uh, how much of uh, the Mediterranean and of course beyond that uh, are really interconnected. Right, exactly, exactly. So So. closing uh, question, more about uh, what you're working on these days, Alexandra, are you still working on Etruscan uh, civilization history and archaeology, or are you working on something different? Well, it's all connected. And so what I'm working on today is actually a study of motherhood myths on Etruscan mirrors. And this is actually um, very appropriate, I think, for today. I, uh, you know, when you think about the the challenges that mothers faced during the pandemic, you know, what was it like to be a mother in Etruscan times? And what kinds of stories did the Etruscans tell about mothers? What kinds of, you know, um, what was emphasized, what was not, what are the challenges of having a child uh, during that particular time? And so I'm looking at um, the stories that were engraved on the backs of mirrors that were uh, presented to women often on their wedding day and you know how those images might have um soothed or you know given comfort to women because you know having birthing a a child was perhaps one of the most important things that they could do so what are the different messages and constructions of motherhood in Etruria? that's what i'm looking at right now okay thanks for coming on the show today alexandra and speaking more about this important ancient civilization All right. You're welcome. It was fun. Thank you. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Carpino co-edited and contributed a chapter to, it's entitled A Companion to the Etruscans. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Alexandra and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.